we've fully now entered into the Christmas season. Some of you have been there for a long time. Weeks ago, you set up your tree. You said, it's 2020. I don't care. I normally set it up later. Uh, but every other rule has been thrown out this year. So I'm throwing out my tradition as far as decorating for the holiday season. And I'm pulling the tree on out and, and putting up the other decorations early. But now with Thanksgiving behind us, we have all fully turned our attention toward the Christmas season. And it is a season when many consider the birth of Christ. And so as Frank earlier said, the next three weeks, I will be preaching a sermon series called Oh Holy Night. And I've made it very easy for the guys in the back. Just one slide this morning, this slide. Oh Holy Night. And each sermon title will be taken from a different line uh, from this beloved song, hymn, Carol, O Holy Night. We're going to be talking over the next three weeks about the earth-shattering significance of Christ's arrival and not one iota of its importance has been lost over the 2,000 years since it happened. And so we're going to be reminding ourselves of why it's so important that Christ came. What the birth of Christ means. But you know, it is an event, the birth of Christ, that we have romanticized. And what I mean by that is, we deal with it or we describe it in an idealistic, uh, unrealistic fashion. We have those serene nativity scenes, those sweet Christmas plays, those melodic carols that just make you feel all warm and fuzzy inside. Well, take away in a manger, for instance, the song. And it's a nice song. And Frank, I'm glad that you led it. But let's think about some lines in that song. Here's one. The stars in the bright sky look down where he lay. Well, even in this picture, we see some stars and the moon in the distance. And we do know that a few days after the birth of Christ, some wise men came from the east after seeing a star in the sky. We read about that in Matthew chapter 2. But on this night, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, we don't know what the weather was like. The wind could have been howling, the rain pouring, the lightning flashing, the thunder rumbling. Maybe not. Maybe it was a nice night because we know nearby there were some shepherds out and about with their sheep. We read about that in Luke chapter 2, but we don't know the weather in Bethlehem that night. But the song says, the stars in the bright sky look down where he lay. What about this line? The cattle are lowing. The cows were gently mooing. But what about the mules and donkeys? <laughs> Weren't they hee-hawing? What about the sheeps and goats? Were they bleating? The dogs, the wild dogs in the streets, were they barking? Could have been, could have been noisy inside the place where Jesus was born. And how about this? The little Lord Jesus laid down his sweet head. The little Lord Jesus asleep on the, on the hay. And this is, this is the kicker right here. The little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. Now, I have been in the room three times when a baby enters the world. And those little things shriek and scream and cry. You've been there. Now, I know this is the Lord we're talking about. 
I know this is the Son of God, but the Son of God limited Himself to human existence. And I have no reason to believe that He, at this stage of His existence, was any different than any other infant. And I have a hard time believing no crying He makes. I imagine when He came into the world, it was as every other baby comes. With great shrieking and screaming and crying. But we have a very idealized or unrealistic vision of the arrival of Christ. But the truth is, truth is, Jesus was born into a place that was smelly. I mean, I didn't grow up on a farm, but I've been into a barn before and I've been around farm animals and they do not smell good. A place that was dirty, that was probably loud with the noises of animals. And of course, a place that was scary. For his young mother and father. Who knew already from the Lord that they were part of something very special. We can take all this one step further. And say beyond a shadow of a doubt. Jesus was born into a world. That was violent. Viciously violent. Arrogant. Greedy. Prideful. It was a world. Broken. By sin. Devastated by sin's effects. And it had been that way for a very long time. Long lay the world. In sin and error. Pining. Sin. What do you think of that word? I probably know what most of you think. You know what that word means. You're church-going folk. You've heard sermons and lessons about sin. You could define it if asked. You know that it has dangerous consequences if surrendered to. You take it seriously. But what about people out in the world? What about the average non-believer in America today? What do they think? Of that word, sin. In a 2015 book called The Road to Character. David Brooks talks about how our society as a whole has lost. A common moral vocabulary. He says we hardly use words anymore like soul. Like redemption. Grace. Bible words, church words that we use all the time when we get together. Words like sin. Here's what he said about that last word. He writes, Today, the word sin has lost its power and awesome intensity. He says it's used most frequently in the context of fattening desserts, as in sinfully sweet chocolate pie or, or chocolate cake. Maybe, maybe some of you had something like that a few days ago at your Thanksgiving that's how the word's used in society today. He says, most people in mainstream conversation don't talk much about individual sin. So this word has fallen out of popular use in our culture, but we desperate, as Christians, we know we desperately need this word. We need this word to understand this world. This word that simply means a failure to live up to God's ideal the Greek word uh, that we translate sin just means to miss the mark. To fail to live up to, to this standard that God has set 
for our lives. We, we must have this word to grasp, to understand how the world really is and how the world's really been. Almost from the start. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 5, we live in an evil age. We've lived in an evil age since the fall. Since the rebellion in the garden by Adam and Eve. In fact, you can draw, think about the arrival of Jesus again. You can draw a straight line from the fear that Mary felt when the angel appeared to her and was going to announce that she would become pregnant with the Christ child. She trembled. She was troubled. You can draw a straight line back from her fear, from Joseph's fear, when Mary was found to be pregnant by the Holy Spirit and he decided they had not yet come together, had not yet been married. He decided to put her away quietly. He was afraid. The angel came to him and, and told him what was up and said, do not fear. You could draw a straight line from the fear of Mary and Joseph all the way back to Adam and Eve's fear that they felt after partaking of that forbidden fruit. The fruit of the one tree, God said, don't mess with that tree. After they took those bites, they hid from God. They were ashamed. They were afraid. You can draw a straight line from the fear of Mary and Joseph to the fear that was produced by the sinful decision of Adam and Eve in the garden. You can draw a straight line from your fear back to their fear. You can draw a straight line from Herod's infanticide, from his bloodlust, because he was afraid that the king of Judah, the true king, had been born in Bethlehem because of the prophecies of old. So he decided to murder all the baby boys two years and under in Bethlehem and in the surrounding region. Can you imagine the, the terror, the horror in that region soon after Jesus had been born? You can draw a straight line from the murderous Herod back to the murderous Cain. The son of Adam and Eve who rose up in the field and struck down his brother Abel in cold blood because he was overcome with anger. You can draw a straight line from the murderous figures of our age. All the way back to Cain. Through Herod. Long lay the world. In sin and error pining. Somebody might come along and say. Well. Good thing the world's a better place now. But is it? Humanity entered the 20th century. The last century. The 1900s. With great optimism. Many philosophers and theologians and government leaders thought, well, maybe this is the century when we finally, finally leave our uncivilized, violent, sinful past in the rearview mirror. We finally leave it behind us. And at the close of the 20th century, what did we have to show for it? Not one, but two world wars. Scores dead. The Holocaust, millions of Jews exterminated. The disenfranchisement of minorities in this country. The sexual revolution, which de-emphasized 
the importance of the nuclear family, the legalization of abortion countrywide in 1973, resulting in the deaths of millions of unborn babies, all culminating in the dawn of this century, the 21st century, in a deadly terror attack in New York City and Washington by Islamic extremists. Listen, the world is no worse today than it's ever been. A lot of people opine and complain and say, I wish we were back in the good old days. Things have never been worse than they are right now. But that's not true. Things have always been bad. I mean, yes, we have unique challenges to our age that we face that maybe our fathers and, or our parents and grandparents and great-grandparents didn't have to face, but if you look back over the annals of history, you know that it's no worse than it's ever been, but it's also no better. No better than it's ever been. Yes, there are positive developments and, and trends that we can look around and be encouraged by in our world today. Well, you, you wouldn't see it on the news, but there are positive things in our world, but it's no better than it's ever been because of sin. Because of sin. Our world is broken by sin, and it has been for centuries, for millennia. When it comes to sin, there is nothing new under the sun, under the sun Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 9. We've seen it all before. Long lay the world in sin and error, pining. Pining. Let's pause at that word for a moment. Pining. What does it mean? Looking, longing, yearning. As long as the world has been mired in the muck of sin, it's been yearning for a way out. Some very interesting verses in Romans chapter 8 that I want to share with you. Starting at verse 19, when Paul says, The creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Romans 8.20 the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to the corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So Paul says the entire world, the creation itself, is burdened under the curse of sin and groaning to escape. But we can't only speak generally about sin as we have been in this sermon. Yes, it affects the world's systems and institutions and governments. But that's because it infects us. It is a sickness within us and we are the ones who make up the world's systems and institutions and governments. Paul says in Romans chapter 3, all have sinned. And they fall short of the glory of God. Not some, not most, all sin. And fall short of the glory of God. And so Paul says, we groan too. We long to be released from this captivity. We long to be turned loose from the curse of sin. Romans chapter 8 verse 23. And not only the creation, not only the world as a whole, but we ourselves 
We ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. We groan. We long to escape. We know that this isn't the way we're supposed to be. We know that we're failing to be what we ought to be. And even people who don't have the all-important vocabulary of sin, like we talked about, they sense in their bones something is wrong. Something's wrong with me. I am broken. I do the very things that I wish I didn't do, and I don't do the things that I know that I should. We all have this innate sense. Something is just amiss in our lives. And the worst thing about this sin business is what our text reveals to us, the text that was read earlier. Our text in Ezekiel chapter 18 in the Old Testament. You're welcome to turn there with me if you'd like. Ezekiel chapter 18 verses 1 through 4. Worst thing about this sin business, what God tells us in Ezekiel is that we are individually responsible. And therefore we must face the consequences. The word of the Lord came to me. Ezekiel 18 1. What do you mean by repeating this proverb concerning the land of Israel? The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, declares the Lord God, this proverb shall no more be used by you in Israel. Verse 4. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the father as well as the soul of the son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. What does all that mean? God says you need to dispense with the fiction that the son has to answer for the sins of the father. Everybody, instead, everybody is individually responsible for their own sin. And on the flip side, the son does not get to inherit the righteousness of the father. Each soul is responsible for how they respond to God, whether they receive the eternal life that he offers or whether they face eternal death for their sinfulness. He expounds on this in verse 20. The soul whose sins shall die, repeating what we just read in verse 4. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father. That clears it up. Nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. Each person is individually responsible for their sin. So you don't get into heaven on the righteousness of your parents. Paul in Romans chapter 6 says, speaking of individuals, the wages of sin is death. The payment for your sin is your death. And so we ask, what can we do? That's the question humanity has been asking since the fall. What can we do? How can we climb up out of this hole, this pit of iniquity that we find ourselves in? But when we read the Bible, we begin to understand that's the wrong question. The Bible instead asks and answers not what can we do, but what has God done? What has God done? That's the right question. So what has He done? Well, a good starting place is Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Let me read these verses to you this morning. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. 
This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Because he was of the house and lineage of David. To be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Long lay the world in sin and error pining. What's the next line? Till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. Sin has devastated our world. Sin has broken us. But Jesus comes in the form of a tiny baby born to two nobodies from Nazareth in a, a backwater village called Bethlehem. The Son of God came into the world in that manner. He appears there to remind us who we truly are and to restore us to who we were made to be. And when we experience Jesus, we begin to understand our worth. We feel our worth. We know how much we mean to God who made us. In the movie Toy Story 4, the little girl Bonnie, who's the owner of Woody and Buzz Lightyear and Rex and Jesse and all the rest of the toys, they call her their kid. Bonnie goes to kindergarten. She's very nervous about going to school for the first time. And on her first day, she makes a friend. No, she doesn't form a friend in the class. She literally makes a friend. She glues together a spork and some googly eyes and some pipe cleaner and popsicle sticks. And she calls him. Do you know what she calls him? Who said it? Forky, you're right, young man, Forky. And I've got Forky right here. She calls him Forky. And Forky becomes Bonnie's new favorite toy. He's more popular than Woody and Buzz and all the rest. She writes her name on the bottom of one of his popsicle stick feet. And the problem is, Forky does not believe he's a toy. He cannot fathom. That he is beloved by a kid. Instead he thinks he's what? What? Trash. That's right. He thinks he's trash. After we went to see this movie. My kids repeated this over and over again. Woody would tell him. No you're a toy. No. Trash. And every time they'd pass by a trash can. Forky would try to, would try to hoist himself into that trash can. Only to be rescued by Woody. Who continues to remind him. He's a, he's a toy. And there's a whole montage in the movie where Forky is trying to throw himself away. And there's a great song by Randy Newman. I won't let you throw yourself away. Woody has to remind Forky that he's special because Bonnie made him and loves him. The devil has done a great job convincing us that because of sin, we're garbage. We're trash. 
And so we try to throw ourselves away into damaging, destructive habits and behaviors. We try to throw our lives away doing things that don't lead to human flourishing, that don't lead to blessing other people, don't lead to living a life for the glory of God. Jesus came long ago on that holy night to a world devastated by sin. Long had lain the world in sin and error pining. Jesus came to show us, to tell us, no, you are not trash. You're God's treasure. Bonnie wrote her name on Forky's foot and God has written His name on your heart. And He's put His Spirit within you. So that you can know you're His. That He loves you. That you were created in His image. You were created to live with Him forever. You were not created to die. You were not created to be punished for your sin. You were created to live. You were created to enjoy the presence of the one who made you forever. And that's why Jesus came. That's why Jesus came. So that you could be reminded of your worth. Jesus appeared and the soul felt its worth. So because of Jesus, we pine no more. Or better stated, we still pine, but we pine hopefully. We pine with a glimmer of hope in our hearts because we are redeemed. And yet we long for our full redemption. After all, Romans chapter 8 that we read earlier about groaning is written to Christians. Christians still groan, but we groan hopefully. Because we know the Spirit has been placed in our hearts as a guarantee. We know that our glorious inheritance is coming beyond a shadow of a doubt. And there's nothing, nothing, nothing that can be done to us that will change the future that God has in store for us. We are saved in the present time, but we long for full salvation in the life to come when sin and error and death will be banished. Will be no more. Jesus came on that holy night so long ago to remove the sin and error from your life and to provide you with Eternal life. The question is, will you receive it? Will you come and name the beautiful name of Jesus? Will you confess your sins? Will you turn away from those? Will you be buried in water so you can come up a new creature having your sins washed away, ready to live forevermore with God by your side? Are you struggling in any way? This has been a hard year, a hard season for so many people. You've come in here with burdens. We talk about leaving those at the back door, but that's so hard to do. You've brought your baggage in here with, with you. And that's exactly where it belongs because this is exactly the place. You can lay it at the feet of Jesus and you can share your problems with people who care about you very much and we can pray for you. We can pray with you. We can beseech our Heavenly Father together on your behalf so that you can find healing. If you need help in any way if you need prayers if you'd like to become a christian now is your time to come right now as we stand and sing